0: Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers and scholars of African American life, culture, arts and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the opportunity to speak with Nikki Finney, who describes her new book of poems, Head Off and Split, as a series of love letters to the world. No wonder there is a Facebook campaign to nominate her to become the 49th U.S. Poet Laureate. And if you read any of her books, particularly the latest one, Head Off and Split, you'll see why she just might get it. Although her book has only been out a few months, it has already been widely reviewed, with Finney being featured on the cover of the prestigious literary journal, Poets and Writers. Finney is busy rereading some of her favorite writers, Jimmy Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry, but took time out of her busy schedule to offer her take on the role of politics in literature, on romantic relationships, and on race. Let's listen in. Hello, Nikki. How are you today?
1: Hey, Vrishan. I'm wonderful.
0: Today we are talking to the phenomenal poet Nikki Finney about her provocative new book of poetry, Head Off and Split, published by Triquarterly Books, Northwestern University Press, 2011. Thank you for joining us, Nikki. Thank you for calling. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a Southern girl uh, born in South Carolina, 1957, along the coast in a small town called Conway, South Carolina, which is right behind Myrtle Beach. I I, I believe that Conway and the ocean and Myrtle Beach all had a profound impact upon my sensibilities as a little girl. Um, and have remained with me uh, going forward in my life. I'm, I'm incredibly close to the ocean, and um, my spirit is, is, I always say my spirit is there. Um, so that had a really just uh, impactful, um, um, it was a very impactful time in my life being raised uh, around so much water and so much historic water because of the connection between black people in the Atlantic Ocean and um, coming across the water to these shores. And I moved, um, my family moved inland when I was a little older to Sumter. My grandparents had a farm at the top of the state, so we were kind of all over the state. I'm an outdoor girl. I I love roaming and walking and uh, uh, a nature enthusiast, I guess you could say, um, to to (laughs) sort of put it in a, a nutshell. But I... Grew up in a in in a town and at a time which I think were very uh, came together to create the poet that I am. I I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. Um, I watched my family and my community fight for human rights and civil rights. Sometimes I was too little, too little and too young to join them. So I remember scribbling on pieces of paper some of my own thoughts, thinking that that was a way to participate. My mom and dad were incredibly uh, active and uh, passionate about um, the rights that we were fighting for at the time. Mm-hmm. And so all of this came together in a wonderful mix of uh, how to make a poet black and bid her to sing, I think.
0: Wow. That's that's beautiful. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your parents? Your dad was a civil rights attorney?
1: Yes, and my mom was a school teacher, uh, elementary ed, uh, was her major in college. They met at a historically black college in South Carolina, a college by the name of Claflin University. It was called Claflin College at the time. And my dad was a first-year law student. Um, South Carolina was segregated at the time, and... The only place my father could go to law school was a place called South Carolina State. And my mom was a sophomore at um, Claflin. And they met and decided uh, this was it. And um, married and have been married for 56 years. Uh, And they have three lovely children. I am one of them and the only girl. My brothers are both lawyers. They are practicing attorneys in the state of South Carolina. I believe that I, in fact, do a little law of my own in my poetry
0: writing. (laughs) Hmm.
1: I've never said that before. That just came to me. I'm looking out the window. But that works.
0: I think you do. I think you do, too. I think you do, too. Um, you You were just quoted before I asked my question, Claude McKay? Uh yes, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that poem that you're recording from is a question. Well, I don't know a a, a, um, a query, a a a invest an, an investigation about this 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 phenomenon of being black and a poet and being mm-hmm. bitted to sing that that God is right. endowed uh, poets right. with such as yourself. Could you speak a little bit more about that?
1: Well. Um you know, I grew up in a small town where I knew no poets, I knew no people, I, sh- I should say. I knew no people who call themselves poets. And yet I felt poetry all around me. I felt poetry lived in the voices of the people that raised me. I heard it. I um, you know, poetry is about the aural presence of sound, you know, the, the oral presence of words in the ear. A U R, not the O R A L, mm-hmm. and I'm and if you if you if you if you believe in poetry and if you understand the sort of road that poetry has played in literature and in life, you go back to the sort of oral connections um, that it has to human beings, and so there were so many people who I knew and who raised me and who taught me, and who were guiding lights for me when I was young, who. I would say he's a poet or she's a poet because there was so, so much aural presence about them
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
1: they knew language and spoke language as if it were song. And so I also think that that's one of the reasons that I came to love language and word play and the presence of music with, that is that is so deeply... Uh, a part of language. Mm-hmm. I, I grew very close to that as a little girl. And I, I, the, the wonderful thing about it is I never grew away from it. So, one of the things that I always wanted to do was represent those people who did not wear, you know, the poetry insignia, but who were poets in their own right and in their own way. And so to, you know, to bid myself to sing is to, to is, is sort of like, my call to go out into the world and to—and I was terribly shy as a little girl. I mean, I had to really get over a lot of that shyness that I don't know where it came from. I don't remember, but I knew I had to get over that or I would never share what I loved about poetry with the world. So I had to really push myself and push myself to open my mouth and stand and deliver. And, you know, I wrote these terrible little Easter poems and got up in church and, you know, (laughs) recited them aloud. And, you know, I had to do that because I thought it was a part of the process of becoming the poet that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And of course, once you become known in church as, um, you know, or church or community as the poet, you know, give it to Nikki. She's a poet. She'll write you a poem and I'll write these, you know, horrible things. And yet there was something wonderful about being known as the poet right. in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I got a lot of uh, I got a lot of work early on in terms of crafting and creating things that, um, uh, you know, were under the category or under the heading of poetry. And then I hopefully got better at it the older I
0: got. Well, you're in, in my opinion, you're 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 quite exquisite at it, and and at other people's opinion too, Nikki Giovanni oh. and. Mina Alexander and Kwame Dawes, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they the blurbs on the back of the book are outstanding. Well, thank you. I've heard you speak, and you, in a, one conversation, you said that it took you seven years to write this book. Yes. Why seven years?
1: Well, you know, I, there's no mathematical equation that I know of that... Um, represents the time you know that when the seed is first planted about the idea for the book to you know going forward to 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 you know draft 10 or draft 20 or draft 50 mm-hmm. and then the the revision and then the final stages and so what i recall about the 7 years is walking into the fish house in my hometown and the fishmonger who was the son of the fishmonger that I knew as a girl said this thing to me that made me kind of before I could answer him it made me think wow that would be something that I could use for a poem and it was I chose the fish that my mom had sent me to you know to get for dinner Um, and I hand, They were in a silver bowl. The fish were just, you know, there in the silver bowl. I handed it to the fishmonger. And uh, he said back, head off and split in a question mark.
2: <laughs>
1: and I said, you know, I was just, I, hmm. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was over in the poetry section of my head, not in the, i got to get this fish for mom and for dinner. But it, it I had heard it my entire life growing up in that community. And then I started thinking about what he was asking um, me at that moment. And he was basically asking, do you want me to take away the cold, dead eyes of this fish, scale the fish? Do you want me to make it neat? Do you want me to clean it up for you before you take it out of here? And I was in this mood where I was thinking about the times we live in and how I wish more people kind of did their own dirty work, did their own hard work, that they would, if so, they would know the ins and outs of what it takes to get something from one stage to another stage. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I was thinking about my nieces and nephews and, you know, if they knew about Fishing like I knew, like I had gone fishing with my grandmother, and I had mm-hmm. she'd made me stand on that bank for five hours until something, you know, tugged at my line mm-hmm. in the water. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I was standing there, she would teach me, she would say things to me. And so it wasn't just about catching a fish and taking something home, but it was also about the process of learning. What it meant to be, what it you know, what it means to be human, what it means to be young, what it means to learn something from the beginning to the end, and all the way through. And I was thinking about that when he said, "Head off and split." And you know, there's this um. You never know where a poem will appear. You mm-hmm. never know where it will raise up its head and say, "Hello, I, you know, I, I need <laughs> you to pay attention here." So, as an artist, you have to kind of keep your sensitivities and your, you know, your, your awareness of awake.
0: Right. And you were obviously deeply aware and awake in that, uh, I guess in the, is, do you call that an opening poem, the introduction?
1: It's, it, it is, it is the introduction and it, you can say an opening poem. Many, I think people have, have basically um, said that it is, you know, a long prose poem, but it, I really try to use it as, an introductory piece to the rest of the to the rest of the book, but that's fine. I, well,
0: it it, it it it's filled with um with with beautiful poetic imagery of the. Mm. M A mm. goes through a, a kind of the narrator. You go through a, a timeline in her head about yeah. the yeah. first time she's at the market or, right. or an earlier right. time and then this time right. with the with the fishmongers grandson or son and then the three black boys in the back with the scales on their face I mean that's all like tremendously beautiful so you you know as an artist you were taking snapshots of the scene or or is it creating word pictures of the scene
1: yeah same thing same thing you know it's like um there's a there's a poet uh, Denise Levertov, and Denise Levertov said many years ago, you smell a poem before you see it." <laughs>
0: Isn't that great? I love it. I love Come it.
1: Come on, Vershawn. Listen, you, so I walk in. There are the three black young men. Yes. Corn knives in hand. Right. There's the white fishmonger, you know, the only white person in the whole joint is the right. fishmonger's son. Right. All the black people are lined up at the door to get their fish Friday. You know, there's the like three ladies in the back with hairnets on. If you don't want to take your fish out, you give it to them so they can fry it. <laughs> and the place is smelling like, you know, fish.
2: Right, right. right. <laughs> so
1: your sense your sensibilities are like <laughs> way high. My eyes are going to the boys. <laughs> and then, and, and I, I told this to somebody last week. I said it was the only place in South Carolina I've ever been, where three young black men can stand in the public and not be arrested wow. for holding a weapon.
0: Wow, wow! Now that's a poem too. That's a poem too. <laughs> that's, that's a, a poem, poem too.
1: I want to. And I said, to him, yeah, go, go, ahead,
0: go right, ahead. I want you to finish that thought.
1: Well, I was just saying that you're right. You know, there's a a poem in the book that's called Liberty Street Seafood, and it, it sort of goes from my walking in to just looking at the boys and how arresting it was for me to see them happy, doing beautiful work. And for the first time, they had like 30 people waiting on them and their handiwork. Right. And so it was just like everything got turned on its head and it was a I mean that's what poets do. Poets look at things that other people kind of dismiss. You know, they might smile and go, Wow, look at that picture and they keep on going. Right. But poets and artists stop and go, Wait a minute, I I have to remind us of this moment because there is something here that we need. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't just
1: go you know, we can't go fast over it like a You know, it's a speed bump and the speed bump slows us down to say, wait a minute, there's something here about who about our humanity.
0: Exactly. I'm just going to just just share a line from that poem that you just referenced.
2: Okay. Okay. OK.
0: Three black boys in hip hop, hot couture in suits of bloody rubber smocks, standing side by side, making three dollars an hour. Beheading and detailing fish, their long knives whacking pine all day, fish um, eyes roll. That's beautiful, Nikki. You, come on, come on. <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> now I want to ask you about something somebody else wrote, because you use a lot of epigraphs. Uh, in yeah, the book. I love
1: epigraphs. I love epigraphs.
0: And your opening epigraph is from Tony K. Bambara. Right. Um, Do not leave the arena to the fools. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. and so why what does that mean to you? oh wow, do I not leave help. the arena to the fools. It means something to me. It means something personally to me when Good. i opened when I opened the book and saw this epigraph, it jumped out at me with full of meaning yes but
1: with- so and i I hope that it means ten thousand. Different things to ten thousand different people,
2: mm-hmm. but I
1: hope those ten thousand things are related.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Because what happened was I, in the last book, the the book before the last one, this, um, the second book called that is entitled Rice. I had just finished it. It had just come in the mail. Tony K. Bambara was fighting for her life in a, hot in a um, um hospice bed in Philadelphia. And I said, Oh, I, I got five copies in the mail, I think, from the publisher and I sent one to Tony because she had been my teacher. I had learned at her feet basically in her house in Atlanta. She had been incredibly generous to me as a young poet who didn't go the the typical route through like an MFA program. I basically sought out my teachers along my life's path. And that's how I met Tony K. Bombar. I was in Atlanta in graduate school and There was Tony teaching uh, workshops out of her house every first Sunday of the month. And so I send her the book, and she writes me back a postcard for Sean, and it just says one line, and it says, Nikki, do not leave the arena to the Mm fool. And I took a piece of tape, and I posted it over my desk. I mean, this was 1995. And she died that. She died like a month later.
2: Wow. But I
1: never forgot. There's no nothing else. It just said love, Tony. And I knew she had gotten a book. And I knew she was saying exactly what my grandmother had been fearing for me. My grandmother had asked me when she saw Rice and she got the book. She said, okay. And she read it. I think she read it. She said, no more books. We're going to stop right here with this one. You're getting too close.
2: Wow. Promise
1: me, promise me, promise me this is the last book. And what Tony was saying and what she had to say to me before she left the planet, don't stop. Keep putting your feet into the arena.
2: Mm-hmm. Keep
1: making sure you know you belong
2: here. Mm-hmm.
1: Do not let anybody tell you you belong over there and we belong over here. Step into this arena. And do your work, and do not look over your shoulder, and do not mm. worry that you're in the wrong place.
0: I hear that. What was your grandmother afraid you were getting too close to? Truth. Wow. Truth. Let me ask you a question about the poetry that's in the that constitute the book. Um, I, I experience different sorts of emotions when I read. These poems, I, I experience anger, um, happiness, love. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I go through the range. Um, I mean, you talk about Katrina, uh, civil rights mm-hmm. history. Um, you know, with the opening poem about uh, Rosa Parks, right. um, that it's 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 so much here. Is, is your is your do you consider your poetry to be political?
1: Uh, I consider life to be political, Mm -hmm. you know, I consider life to be political. I don't, I don't, you know, I'll never forget, I was 26 years old, my first book had just been published by William Morrow, I was on a small little quick tour that I, you know, for the book, because I wasn't, nobody knew me, it was my first book, and I was in, I think, Florida, very conservative state, and um, this man, this older man, Stood up in the back and he said, I, I said, everything is political. I just, someone asked me a question and he took me to task. He said, everything is not political. There are things that are da 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 and everything is not political. And I said, um, my opinion is that everything is political and everything, you know, means water, air, where we live, what we can buy, food. Um, what's funny, who gets to make decisions for us, uh, what's in the water that uh, I brush my teeth with. All of that is political.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so life is political as far But that, you know, of course, when you say that, is not what, you know, they tell you about art or about politics in America. And that's because um, we... Because the people that um think that they are in power, <laughs> the power that be uh don't want they don't want you to know what they know, and so they try, they keep us they try to keep the masses of us um unknowing
2: mm-hmm.
1: and yet the more we educate ourselves about uh where the power lines are in whose community and um where they will uh take risk. Um In terms of of um, uh, 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 chemicals on food, um, who gets to you know the whole difference in if what 's the difference between the people who do some drugs and the people who do other drugs? Some people go to jail and some people don't um, who uh, lines the prisons in this country? who privatizes the prisons and who runs you know all of that stuff is political. And yet, I don't see any, and, and as a result of that, I don't see any difference in one poem writing about uh, the, Katrina hits New Orleans,
2: mm-hmm. and the
1: powers that be do not make a move. They do not make any decision. They sit around and twiddle their thumbs. They sit around and call meetings while people stand on roofs, begging to live, right, and had right. that happened in a, and and so in that poem, there is another situation. A natural disaster happens in San Diego, you know, right mm-hmm, after Katrina, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you see a very rich community.
0: That's right, and
1: the response is like instant, and mm-hmm, people are you mm-hmm. know flown out of these. It's it's and, and the one the, the amazing thing about that for me as a poet is water is the first disaster
0: <laughs> right. and fire is yes. The next yes and yes yes so in the fire yes. people yes. are you know yes.
1: swooped up and they go and they're taken to yes. massage, and they're taken to they're given for gras to right. eat and you know and I'm like what is it, it is this not political
0: right. This is the second poem left in the book that yeah. you are talking about um, yeah, for yeah. the listeners. That's that's right. very beautifully rendered. I love the line when you say, "In the future, observation helicopters will lead the well observed South yeah. and fly." And Kanye West was finally right formation, uh-huh. <laughs> and they will arrive over burning San Diego.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, and anybody yeah. who knows the reference about Kanye West knows what right. he said. About Bush, how, how, I want to ask a question, I want to ask it in two ways, and I want you to answer it in the way that applies to you. Okay. How, if, if following from that all, everything is political and that your poetry is also political, how do you choose your topics, Mm -hmm. or how did you choose the topics in, that are in this book, or how did they choose you?
1: Yes, yes. They chose me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I am chosen by. Um, you know, one of the things that I believe, and not all artists believe this, and certainly not all teachers who teach writing teach this, but I believe and try to teach my students that they have to stay engaged with life. That part of part of the thing that keeps me in love with writing. In love and struggle with writing, to use uh, you know Alice Walker's term, which I love, um, she has it, that that book of stories in love and trouble, and in love and struggle, because I think you know love comes with struggle. You don't you know not the Hollywood love. But I'm talking about real love, mm-hmm. and love comes with trouble, and so they, it also comes with a lot of other things. But the thing that I love about writing is I love it. It it troubles me. It's a struggle, and there's nothing easy about it, nothing, and it is the hardest work that I do with my life, and I tell my students that to stay engaged with my art, my craft, my work, I have to stay engaged with life, Mm -hmm. and this book, I didn't... I didn't know this book was going to have these poems in it seven years ago. So, John, I have to live, I have to live. And then I have to be willing to, to pull back creatively from the process while wow, I'm, I'm writing poems, you know, every day I'm writing, I'm writing a poem, working on two or three poems at the same time. And I do not know where they are connected yet. right. I have to just be patient. And I also have to pay attention. I can't be patient and lean back. I have to be patient and lean forward and say, "What's okay, I wrote this poem about Katrina. Uh, uh, you know, that happened in, you know, this time period. I wrote this poem about um, uh, Rosa Parks because she passed and I, I bought a ticket and went to Washington because it was the first time a black woman had been in the rotunda. Mhm What does all this have to? I wrote a poem like you know I wrote a love poem you know what is you know what does my love poem have to do with Rosa Parks have to do with Condoleezza Rice and my query about who she is as another southern girl on another plane doing something does she use is Condoleezza Rice I, you know, I wrote a suite of poems about her is she using her do I see her southernness coming through mm-hmm. in her life? How can she deny being? Black and Southern, I'm not saying she does, she doesn't, but I'm saying what is she embracing about that and what is she rejecting about that? So my curiosity as a as a black woman, um, you know, humanist is curious about her. And so I don't know the answer to how the book comes together except I'm paying attention to where they seem to be tethered, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and they seem to be tethered in this space that also has the title Head Off and Split, which to me, at the end, when I had enough poems, and I said, wow, I think I have enough for a book here. Let me pull out some that are not connected to this and focus on the ones that seem to be... um, associated with each other spiritually and physically and culturally and historically and the more I did that you know it's kind of like a whittler you you know you have a piece of wood and you don't it doesn't look like anything and then the more you take away the more you add it begins to resemble something and when I did that sort of taking away and looking at what was left I thought wow these poems are about not looking away. Mm -hmm. These poems are about not handing over the hard things to somebody else. These poems are about looking the difficult and the beautiful and the deathly and the lovely straight in the eye, no matter what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And, And so then the topic... The title, Head Off and Split, rose to the top of that conversation I was having with myself. And so these poems then began to, I won't say like a Ouija board, but I love the Ouija board, kind of situate themselves under that energy. Right. And that's how, that's how the book came to be, and then an editor steps in to say, "No,
2: this poem doesn't go
1: with this section. You've got to move it over here, right. you know and, mm-hmm. and you I love a good editor. I would do mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. without a great eye coming in because I'm too close to it. That's awesome.:
0: you know? That's awesome. How do you know yeah. when something is a poem? How do you know it's a poem?
1: I think I go back to um, "I smell it." you know I, that, that that phrase stays with me. I'm out in the world. I'm looking around. I'm like, wow. And, and you know, when I say when I say Denise Lavertu says, "You smell upon before you see it." The smell is almost to me. She didn't have it in quotation marks, but it is in quotation marks. It's like not a literal smell, but it's something in me, in my body, that goes. You know, I walk into the fishmonger's house, and he goes head off and split. And I look at him like, "What did you say?" Mm-hmm. In that moment. I smell
0: a poem. What I mean when you're writing when you like, when you when you put that idea yeah. on on the page and you yeah, work we yeah. work on it for two weeks or three or right, a year. Right, right, right. How do how do you I'm asking about the finality, yes, yes it's developing yes. into it a poem, but how do you know when that's a poem, when that's a poem you want to say you know what? This, this 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 is a whether you publish it or not or whatever right, right. poets do with their poetry. Right. How do you know?
1: Well, great question. Great great question because there are many stages of of the writing of a poem. Mm-hmm. The what I what I explained to you was that sort of initial, you know, wow, there's something there. Then I go home, I take a piece of paper, I write, head off and split one column i'm writing what is my history with that phrase then words start to come together or images start to come together i wrote the second column about i just i was describing the three young black men in the background with those knives and then i saw the women over there with the hairnets <laughs> and then i saw the line of us waiting to be fed and then i look at this for sean i've got like six categories of a world in one room in a fish house in South Carolina i got smell i got visuals i have taste mm-hmm. i have so my senses are on overload i know there's a point here that's that's one that's one phrase, a phase of it the second part is i've got to take out You'll, you'll see if you look at that point, the, the ladies with the, the the hairnet didn't make it. I had to take them out because I had to sort of focus more on I wanted the, the three, what I call the backup boys
2: mm-hmm. with the
1: knives to be the center of the attention once you get past um, everything else going on. And I thought the ladies back in the back were almost a separate point. So they had to be drafted out. Mm-hmm. and my focus became sort of background foreground. So once you once you have that kind of sensory environment, once I have the desire to say something about those boys and about the fishmonger's son who's now, who's replaced him, and about my history as a little girl going in there, the rest is just drafting and crafting and revision.
2: Because mm-hmm.
1: you have the elements, you know, you've got the language, you've got the music, you've got the orality, you've got the um you 've got the narrative right I just don 't know where it's going to begin and where it 's going to end yet, and you don't know that as the writer until you every day m- walk your way to that point and to that room and see you know how it how it shapes itself what 's the shape of it
0: has something that has arrested your attention a subject or um a visual that you thought was a poem not made it as a poem
1: yes oh many 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 many
0: mm-hmm.
2: yes
1: I've had the visual language I've had the, the 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 desire to write it felt like it was present and yet it just what you know the connectors weren't working it's like the you know like the like it's an electric almost like a, it's like an electric grid right You've got all the things there, but the electricity's not moving from one component to the x to the next.
0: <laughs> right, right,
1: right. And so it's just like, wow, these are great words. And I, I mean, I, 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 I tell my, I tell my students this sometimes. I say, you've got language here. You've got a great title. This is a good idea, but you know, the things that that make it work aren't here yet.
2: Yeah. And
1: sometimes you have to. You have to be willing to set it aside, come back to it, and you have to be willing to say, "You know what? this may never make it."
0: Right, right Or and be you or, do, or, right. Mm-hmm. You, or what I, I was going to mm-hmm. say I was going just going to underscore the earlier point that that you made, which is sometimes it just takes patience. It just takes patience. You said earlier that you wrote a a, a love poem. Um, yeah. although I think all of them are love poems. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I thank I thank you
1: for that because um uh they are and uh you know that the great poet, American poet Lee Young Lee was asked, you know, what is what is his major theme and he said, oh, "I I only write love poems." Mm. And I I thought, oh, "Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's true."
0: But there are there are a couple in here that are definitely <laughs> look there you go. Now thought, you're going to start. You know what? I thought one of them was addressed to me. It says. <laughs> <laughs> one of I'm sorry. You says not, you're, not supposed to laugh, you're not supposed to laugh that loud on radio. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They'll cut it out. Okay. Uh, one of them says for v, But, you know, of course, it's not me. But I can. <laughs> but, there, but following preceding v. Um, yeah. Orangery. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Orangery. Orangery. Orangery.
0: Yes. Orangery. Um Preceding that poem, it's the Cattails poem. The oh, yeah, little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, these are these are are really provocative. I just I, I, in a moment, I'm going to ask you if you would you would read some of this to okay. us. But I'm okay. going to if you will allow me to just read two pieces to you. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you I, I, two pieces that I love, and then maybe you'll, re, you'll respond. Um, okay. Opening, you know,
1: I, I love this, that you're reading and I'm listening. <laughs> I to, no, no, you got to know, this is not how it's done.
0: Oh, okay. No,
1: but Varshawn, listen, you, you are turning the tables in the best way. Wow. Because I get to listen to you. You know, I change spots, I change spots. And so I can then comment on what I hear in your voice, which is just, it's very, it's very big. Go on, please, I'm listening.
0: In the opening of of the poem, Cattails, which begins on page 50, um, beautiful poem, beautiful poem. Um, The second, the third sentence begins, The driving woman crosses three bridges and seven lakes just to get to her door. She stops along the highway, wades into the soggy ground, cuts down eye cattails, carries them to her car as if they might be sorbet orange, long stemmed Confederate roses sheared for Sherman himself. And then down towards the end of the page, the driving woman Mm -hmm. and the woman that she has lunch with uh, are in a car Mm -hmm. and uh, this is what you write. The driving woman frets and flames. May I walk you to your car? They walk. The driver changes two lanes in third gear fast. The trunk opens. <laughs> the Mario and Dreddy look alike fills the other woman's arms with the sable sheared cattails.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, for me, it was all done. <laughs> <laughs> that was it the book was over i had oh, that's read good that's everything good. in this poem i mean you wow. know if, if i had if that's i don't good. read another poem
2: oh I, sure
0: have, that's have, great. I had a feel this this was that's beautiful thank
1: you you know what i love about i love how you read it and i also love it i i call the art director and this is just like You can't, like, make this happen. This is just kind of like living right, and you hope, you know, something comes back to you. Well, you hope you're living right. So it's the last line of the page. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you
1: read ends that page. And as a poet, because I'm so aware of white space, and the last word of each line of any poem that I write is not random. It's conscious and so when I saw the way the poem was set up on the page, I just literally screamed
2: mm-hmm.
1: because, of course, as you know, you're looking at the book and the poem. The poem goes on, right? But, but, but you cannot help but linger on that line, right? Because it is the last line on the page, right? And so it's just, you know, I could not have asked that it be not any more beautiful than that because if it was a bigger book, longer physically, that second part would have been directly under that part. Yes. But the topography of the poem breaks it and so we get the pause and that's just you know, that's just that's like dessert.
0: Yes, it is. I so yes, that w- that was my experience. Yeah, good. Will, will good. you will you read Something for us?
1: Yes. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, I want to. I want I never. I never read this poem, and I wanted to read it uh, today. It's on page 69, and it's called "Segregation Forever." And a little backstory is, I was. Uh, I just heard this report about, um, you know, black men making up, you know, what some ridiculous. of the prisons in this country or something like that. And I just heard this report and I was thinking about how, you know, whenever I see the news, I see young black men being arrested or, you know, something, the face is always, you know, us. And we're always being hauled off somewhere. And so I was walking home and I saw these three black boys playing for Sean, just playful in the street. It was after the rain and i thought i said and and this is a, a moment where you know you i knew i wanted to write about them i wanted to keep them somewhere so that we would not forget that before we get to that place where we are politicized and that we fill up the jails or we do this or do that because that's what the nightly news says that we will remember and that we will keep our sons and daughters you know, young and playful and creative and imaginative as long as we can. And so I saw them, I went home, and I wrote this. It's called Segregation Forever. And I'm, I'm just going to read the first part and the last part because uh, it's too long because I'm a long-winded poet. But it starts with three black boys strike oil in the street after the rain, a comic strip. And it starts with an epigraph, because I love epigraphs. There was a time when the shallow, warm seas were filled with coral, starfish, and flower-like echinoderms. Some were free swimming, but most were fixed by a stem surrounded by a circlet of arms. And that's from a book, my first favorite book, which was called Fossils, A Guide to Prehistoric Life. It's tattered, the back is off, and I used to keep it in my back pocket, because I was a tomboy. Here's the poem. Three black boys hurl like invertebrates to reach the top of the earth wall first. They, loose sea lilies cut on their hinge line above thorax, below septum. They fly, fo- fly float with the help of quick feet skating to peer a new precipice hoisted and held by their own giggles. They... Counterpoint and Twain, three Picassos without the matador's interfering prick or keening European brush. Oshun's fingers, six million years long, suspend each of their high notes. Three black boy bodies, dervish and dangle. Their ancient sound fills every sidewalk crack in the new world. And then I break and then I'm going to read you the end. All three together remind me of the black rapids of 1919, Tennessee Valley, no warning. Just a freakish summer Sunday breach of river laying everything down, bringing everything up. From here, I know their rocketing joy must go unrecognized. The good news of their pure monkey shine chicanery must be put away now all headlines and any waiting New World phylum must never be reported or filed. There, black boy joy on this slick, well-named street must remain untelevised. I know history and you know what happens next.
0: Mm. You know, when I read this poem for the first time, it reminded me of um, of a uh, uh, Helen Johnson, mm. and mm. Sh- and she has a poem, uh, mm. I'm, I'm blanking on the title of the poem, but it's, it, it, there's a line in there that says that you are too splendid for this city street.
1: Yes, yes, <laughs> it's exactly the same spirit. I was like, yeah. oh, how to protect them, how to put <sighs> something over them so nobody will... You know, take them into that land that I was describing before, how to make them, just let them be, let them be who they are without being put upon by the isms of the world. Oh, yes, that's the same spirit that I felt when I had to get home and save them on paper.
0: Do you have another or any more that you want to share?
1: Um, maybe, uh, let's see. Yeah, I, I love I love this poem. This is a poem that um, came to me when I was watching, I was in the movie theater watching the March of the Penguins. I'm not going to, it's a long poem too, but I was in the in the theater in my seat in the dark and I, I saw the mother penguin who had come back and she was feeding the baby penguin after a very long time. And, you know, the, she has to put her mouth into the baby penguin's mouth and the baby penguin, you know, eats the regurgitated fish. And I said, "Oh my gosh, that my mother did that one day, long time ago. When was that?" And I started thinking about <laughs> being in the high chair in her mm-hmm, kitchen, mm-hmm. in our kitchen. I was a tiny child, and she would chew on the fish before putting it in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I thought, "Oh, and you know, how do you remember that?" But it's like I don't know. You you know you you, you smell a poem, and then you go in search of it. Right. So, I'm going to read just a couple of the stanzas from this poem called Penguin Mullet Bread. She pulls white, oily meat of mullet off the long, sharp bones of spine. The bones prick. She never once says, ouch. Kissing the tips now and then, I watch her long fingers. Seven inches away, my eyes are two glossy olives glued to the delicate woman's mouth. It is summer. Behind her, the white curtains she has made move like seagrass. I am camera. She is movie. She bites, then rolls, placing plump, soft chunks of fish into the side of her mouth. Her eyes grow big from what she tastes. I study her mouth, not her eyes. Watching her eyes is for later. Later. She chews slowly, never showing what's there. Her tongue twists and falls. My dinner moves in slow, white-fish animation. She coos like a woman who can taste any flavor in the world, a woman who can hula-hoop in her own mouth.
2: Mm.
1: My hand rises. My fingers reach, fall short, then fall again. I want to say, Mama, pull the flesh from the throat, not the belly. The meat there has more juice, mm-hmm. but she is the mama, and I have no baby patois for what little I know of watery things.
0: Wow, beautiful! I love,
1: that. love that point. You know what? I'm. I was thinking of this when we were sp- speaking before, and I just I think I need to correct this because when we first started talking, you asked me was that quote about a, a poet bidding a poet sing and you. I, I think you said, or at least I heard you say, County Cullen. But I think you said Claude McKay.
0: Did you I say did. McKay? I did say Claude McKay. Is it County, County Cullen?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You it's know County what? Cullen.
0: I thought it was County, <laughs> County Cullen, but you know what? The reason why I didn't say County—I was gonna—I was—I I was gonna say it's either County Cullen, right, 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 or right. Claude McKay. But well, that's, the that's weird. I, I heard County
1: you say Cullen. County Cullen in my head, and then I thought, no, that's not what he said. So. Right,
0: right, right, right. Exactly. No, anyway. Yeah.
1: Right. I just want I, I just want the listeners to know uh, that we we knew that, that we do we, we, we knew we slipped
0: yes. we up <laughs> um, right. but oh you know, that 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 whole Langston Hughes uh, poem about or not I mean his essay about the um, nigger on the racial mountain and yes it's yes oh yeah made me say no county color was it you know right right it's it's, it's,
1: it's a um, make a poet black and bid him sing and it's a poem that's entitled uh, Thus Do I Marvel is
0: the name of it. Yeah. Thank you so for Oh, yet that. do
1: I marvel one of the two. Yeah.
0: Um, and that's part of it. I, and I think, you know, that's part of it. Let me tell you what my favorite poem is, Nikki. Okay, please. I mean, the whole book, of course. <laughs> but I love left.
1: Oh,
2: you do? I mean,
0: mm. I mean, Left is mm-hmm. is for me, um, well, uh, one of your blurbists say that, um, we need mm-hmm. to hear your voice now, that, um, uh, that, that you're a voice of this time mm-hmm. and that you speak, uh, uh, you know, about, you know, What's going on in America right now, unequivocally, right. directly. Right. And you even mentioned that yourself. And left, for me, really um, exemplifies um, that consciousness. Right. Um, I, I love the imagery in the poem the woman with the cheerleading legs who has been left yeah. for days. And then the, the literacy part uh, the part about mm. the e being but left.
2: Off, e, yeah. Yeah. E.
0: You know the missing E, and whether or not the missing E could be a decision or yes. a deciding factor on whether to save or not save, uh, you know, someone. I mean, we talked about this poem a little earlier, and I and I came back to it just because, mm-hmm. um, for me, you know, it's it's the one that it, that I want to tear out the book and hang on my wall.
1: <laughs> well, you know, um, that that matter. I'm glad we did come back to it because I I read that poem so much and it never i never tire of it for Sean because there's so many people whose lives are still 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 impacted by the negligence first the the, the natural disaster but then the negligence that happened after Katrina and as a poet um, i believe in that thing that uh, the great Polish poet Czeslaw Milosz said once when he said uh, a poet's job is to save something
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I feel like my job is not ever to forget what happened after Katrina mm-hmm. and if I if it takes me the rest if it takes me the next 50 years and the rest of my life I will read that poem because at first I was worried. I really wanted to get something right about I wasn't there, you know. I wasn't I- involved in it. Everything that I knew, I knew from other sources. I, you know, I saw that woman on the building with the with the um, poster, and I saw her misspelled word, and I thought, you know, oh, so all of that. I, but it was through the TV and through the radio and through the you know the newspaper that I gathered. All I wasn't there. But I went to New Orleans and I read this poem. And this woman who lived in the Ninth Ward came up to me and took my hands in her hand. And she's a community worker. She she stayed during Katrina. She has never left. And she said, Daughter, you got this right. Mm. And now I just I did what you did. I said, you know, with my she gave me permission because, you know, as a. it's important to me that I get it right
2: right right
1: you know it's it's not important that you know everybody I just I have to try to get it right as right as I can get it and right for her to for to for her to acknowledge it in that way meant everything to me now of course somebody else could say I got it wrong but she came up and she waited and she she said you you know there are a lot of people who weren't here who didn't get it right right But you weren't here and your sensibilities and we talked, you know, we just went outside and she said, thank you. You know, and it was it was the greatest gift for her to thank me
0: for writing that poem. Well, you know, one of the things that you do, Nikki, is is you listen and you and you listen to what I'm going to call the ancestors Mm -hmm. and and to the universe. I mean, you Mm -hmm. even you even say that in that very poem on page 15 at the bottom you say the grandmothers were right about everything about
1: everything <laughs> everything version
0: yes everything they were right yeah let me ask you i'm going to ask you one more question about this book no i'm going to ask you two more questions about this book one is selfish um be selfish there's a poem i didn't write it down it's about a woman on a rickety porch in Texas.
1: Oh, yeah. Mary Monroe.
0: Yes, Mary Monroe. Yes. What's going on?
1: Oh, man. I walk, you know, I I try not to watch the news because all it does is enrage me. But this was after Katrina and a couple of weeks after. And it was when Hurricane Rita hit, you know, another part of that. Up, up, up another part of the panhandle and hit Texas. And I'm going through and watching the news is on, and there's this young, wonderful white reporter who's with the sheriff of a small town. The town's been evacuated, and it's a shotgun house. The, you can see the winds are, like, tearing up the street. They've got, like, five minutes to get someplace, and there's a black woman on the porch. And she's standing there with her arms crossed. And the sheriff is like, Miss Monroe, please, nobody is going to come back for you when you call. Not if you call, when you call. And she goes, I'm not calling you. And she goes, I'm not going with you. I'm staying here tonight in my house. And the reporter's like begging her to go, the sheriff's begging her to go, and she's not moving.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the can- everything cuts off. I go from my walk. I'm thinking about what would make a black woman not leave the house when they tell her there's not going to be a house.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Everybody else is gone, but this one black woman, 80 years old, rickety house. Why would you leave? And I start my head. I'm thinking the rest that I make up after that beginning part. Is really in my own mind, mm. and it's a, it comes together with my knowledge of being black in America, of watching black women have to give, you know, wait a lifetime to own a house. You know, twenty-year-old people, you know, of of certain families and certain neighborhoods, they they get houses. Here's your house, sir. Here's your house, ma'am. But because of the differences in Uh, neighborhoods and class and race and all that, black women go into a bank to try to buy a house. Right. You might as well. That's the most impossible thing on the planet, but not to some people. Right. And so as a black woman, I'm thinking she didn't leave because she had to take her chances. Right. Because she goes through in the poem, she goes, Utah. I don't know anybody in Utah. You gonna send me to Utah? And then you hear the stories about black people being sent to Utah after Katrina and they're looking around for their community.
2: Mm.
1: They're looking around for the New Orleans kind of community they had and they're in Utah. And she knows all this and so she decides, you know what? I've been through every hurricane in my life and she names them David, Francis, you know, and she says, I made it. And I'm going to make it through this one. And she pushes them away. She goes in the house. She bolts the door. And she settles herself in for the night.
0: Right. That's nice. I do not.
1: Vershawn, I don't know if she made it. I don't know.
0: Well, if she did. did.
1: I I don't want to know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she made it in some way. That's what I think. She did. She (laughs) did. She
1: did. I believe that. I believe
0: that. I feel her confidence in the other part of that internal monologue when. When she yes. says, never give me nothing free before, now right. all of a sudden they hand it out free, like Definitely. butter or jumbo packs of juicy fruit. Right. right. <laughs> and what, what about the last, the last page? Yeah. The last yeah. page. Yeah, yeah. It ends with a line, I have spoken the best I know how. And you know what? I believe, I believe you. <laughs>
1: You know, there's this beautiful brother by the name of Thomas Sayers Ellis, who is a poet and who's also an amazing photographer. And he was putting together this book and he said, I'm asking, you know, black poets to write an instruction manual for young black poets and young brown poets coming up. What would you say? And I said,
2: oh, what would I say?
1: Mm. So I wrote this instruction final to brown poets from black girl with silver Leica, and it's just you know be this is what to do just like lean forward and be camera black eyed aperture be diamondback terrapin you know be isosceles cirrus rhapsody hogan dogon hubble stay hot drink the ephemerides Look up the word salving before you use it in a sentence. No, salving is not a verb. Chew eight times before you swallow the lyrics and silver lamentations of James Brown, Abby Lincoln, Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, and Aretha. Hey, watch your language. Two and a quarter is not the same as deuce and a quarter. Two-fisted is not two-faced. Remember, one monkey don't stop, no show. Let your fat belly be quilts of quietus. Pass on what the great winemakers know. The juice is not made in the vats, but in the vineyard. Wow. Keep yourself rooted in the sun, rain, and darkly camphored air. Grow until you die. But before you do, leave your final kiss. Lay mint or orange eucalyptus garland. Double tuck these lines. Careful to the very end what you deny, dismiss, and cut away. I have spoken. The best I know how.
0: Amen. 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 well, Nikki, we have taken up a lot of your time. A can lot, you- a lot.
1: <laughs> you told me, I and I have enjoyed every minute. Every um, minute. I'm sorry. Let me. You keep hush.
0: laughing. <laughs> and loudly. Um, can you tell us if you're working on anything else right now?
1: I'm always working on something, but I right now I'm reading. I'm not writing a lot, and I've been on the road with Head Off and Split for about four or five months. I'm just winding down. I feel like it has, you know, I've put the Vaseline on its legs now, and it's got two strong legs, and it's out in the world, and I'm, you know, not, I don't have to do as many things with it. I, I still love talking about it, but I'm reading, and one of, and I have to tell you this, I'm, I am immersed in James Baldwin.
0: Oh, oh, oh! I am
1: submerged up to my eyes.
0: Mm.
1: I am just on every side of my bed, my table, my house. There's a Baldwin stack. I'm reading like I am reading to live. I'm reading like I am hungry, thirsty. You know, I, I'm. He's just. He's back. I haven't. I haven't read him like this. In 20 years, and I am just like giggling.
0: That's what I'm doing right now. You know what? Uh, It's a good thing that you didn't you didn't say that earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Because then we would have to talk Baldwin.
1: Well, maybe that's part two, next (laughs) conversation. Okay.
0: Exactly. Thank you so much, Nikki Finney. You're so welcome. Thank you. On the new books in African American uh, studies and discussing your great new book Head Off and Split published by TriQuarterly uh, and Northwestern University Books uh, Press 2011 thank you
1: thank you Sean for calling all
0: right I've been talking and laughing along with my friend and colleague Nikki Finney about her new book Head Off and Split published by tri Press and Northwestern University Press 2011 if you want a glimpse of the inimitable mind of Nikki Finney Please pick up a copy of Head Off and Split without delay.